Hello, welcome to a new episode of GNWP Talks. I'm Naima Kane. And I'm Shalini Medapali, and we are research and advocacy interns at the Global Network of Women Peacebuilders. So we had the opportunity to interview Cora Weiss. Cora Weiss is an incredible woman. We here at the Global Network of Women Peacebuilders have a particularly special relationship with her, given that we offer the Cora Weiss Fellowship. Cora Weiss has very much influenced Naima and I, and her credentials speak for themselves. She's been nominated for three Nobel Peace Prizes and has also been part of nearly every single woman's movement since the 60s. We hope you enjoy this episode of GNWP Talks. So hello, Ms. Cora Weiss. How are you? Hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So do you want to just give us a brief background on what you do and who you are? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm an 83-year-old woman, and I've been a woman for all my life. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been a feminist woman without knowing it. That was in the early stages. It started with the anti-colonial movement and the civil rights movement and the human rights movement and the peace movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, and the women's movement, and now Black Lives Matter. And it's all civil society. That's my crowd, my fellow members (laughs) of civil society. Perfect. So 1325 is a resolution that is very important to us and the company as well, and you have a big role in that. So can we ask you about that as well? Sure. In 1999, I was the president of the Hague Appeal for Peace, which held the centennial of the world's first peace congress. That was in 1899. And in 1999, on the centennial, we called people together under two banners. One, peace is a human right and two, it's time to abolish war. So 10,000 people from around the world came. It was the war in former Yugoslavia was going on. And a group of women said, it's time for the Security Council to utter the word woman. It had never in its history, in the history of the UN, used the word woman in a resolution. So they put up a sign, anybody could do anything they wanted to at this Congress, and more than a hundred women from around the world gathered together on their own, it was not a scheduled meeting, and started talking about what the Security Council could do for women. Fast forward, that inspired us to sit around the table at what was then called UNIFEM, which was the precursor of UN Women. And there were probably a dozen civil society women, including myself. And first we argued and compromised and had put our differences out on the table. And then we got to work and we started drafting. We had a woman working with us who we seconded from the Namibian mission to the UN. Because Namibia's uh, Namibia's ambassador was going to be president of the Security Council in October of 2000. So we went around the table 
and she helped us with what we call Security Council language because she worked for Namibia and they were on the Security Council. Mm -hmm. And we knocked out a draft of what eventually became the unanimously adopted Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace, and Security. Why was that important? It was the first time that the Security Council said that women could participate. There was no mandating language. There was no shall or will mm -hmm. in the resolution. Mm -hmm. But we now take it as shall and will. Right. So there were three Ps. The first is women <clears throat> participated all levels of governance including at peace tables. Second P is prevention. The states shall prevent violent conflict. And the third is protection. Women and girls should be protected during violent conflict. And it was a revolution. First of all, <clears throat> Kofi Annan, who was Secretary General, uh, had a gender advisor and we brought the draft resolution to her, and she gave it to her deputy on October 29th at night and said, have this ready in Security Council paragraphs by tomorrow morning. It's a universal resolution. Everything that you need is in it. And I, I won't go into the daughters of, we call them, yeah, all right. the 18s and mm -hmm. 19s. When you look at the different women, peace, and security resolutions that are in existence today, what amendments do you think could be made to, to make them better or more revolutionary? New amendments? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing before you start amending them is to educate the new diplomats because mm. this was done 17, 18 years ago. Right. Okay. Yeah. And none of the diplomats today were there 18 years ago in 2000. My suppressed desire is I'm waiting for a country to be charged with violating 1325 right. and okay. bring the case to the International mm. Court of Justice. Mm. That would be great if one of you women would be a great international <laughs> Okay, so we've talked about 1325 and your involvement. So as members of GNWP, we wanted to talk about the Cora Weiss Fellowship a little bit too. So can you explain what that is, why you wanted to do it, and your involvement and all of that? Well, it wasn't my idea. Okay, it was okay. Mavic Cabrera Beleza's idea, and she is brilliant. Mavic came up with the idea, and I said, "But you're supposed to be dead after your name. You get your name on a program." <laughs> I mean, I can't stand it that I'm in some museums because I thought museums are for dead people. <laughs> so she explained that they wanted to bring 1325 to the local level, to the communities where they have partners or women's organizations 
and use it as an educational tool. And they want somebody to come every year from communities around the world to learn about 1325, how to use it, and take that information home and apply it. Okay. And I said, go for it. Look at who yeah, they, exactly, yeah. uh, who the fellows have been, yeah. and so many people applying. Yeah. Right. That knocks my socks yeah. off. <laughs> so, okay, a little bit of a turn, but we were talking off camera, off podcast, <laughs> that about how some interviewers tend to bring up the men in your life, your husband, your father, before they really ask anything that you do. And when we were Googling you, which you probably don't like to hear. I am thrilled. I was so knocked out by that. Tell me the name of the place that you oh, found you it. Know. You didn't know about it? No, so of course the not. I never looked myself page, up. Well, we've looked you up. And the KeyWiki page comes up with... What's it called? KeyWiki? Yeah. K-E-Y? Yes. yes. And then Wiki. And it describes Cora White is the wife of New York lawyer Peter Weiss and that is the first thing it says about you before anything else which I thought was pretty interesting and then it well, brings up how your, your interview went. right so that's how it started and the daughter of Samuel Rubin so I wanted to ask you what you want to say about that because I'm sure that's that a huge well door. I love my husband and we prove it because we just did 62 years of our marriage congratulations and I loved my father. And I guess I'm grateful to my husband for not objecting to what I did in my all my years of marriage, which are not over. For instance, I went to Vietnam five or six times during when the bombs were dropping, and I left him at home with three babies. Right. So I'm very grateful to Peter for not objecting because I was going into dangerous situations and it was a high risk they were, they were high risk trips and I did something that has never been done in wartime before you know I persuaded the women's union not the government to allow us to bring mail from families of prisoners of war to the prisoners if the prisoners would send a letter back so that we could establish who was alive in, a, in the Vietnam Vietnamese prison camps. And um, taking another turn and just asking more about your just personal development and how you got to this place of being the type of person who goes to Vietnam during wartime um, to work with with women and you know within the whole peace building. World. So what really sparked your interest in, in feminism and made you want to get involved in the women's movement during that time? Was there something that you read or saw or did someone or something really inspire you and that triggered this whole um, kind of like wave of energy and, you know, like wanting to, to really get in, directly involved? Sometimes it's hard to put your finger on one thing. Yeah. Sure. In 1961, I was visited by a friend, a woman friend, where we lived, and asked if I wanted to join an organ, a new organization called Women's Strike for Peace. And Women's Strike for Peace, which we called WISP, mm -hmm. and people who belonged to it were whispers. Oh, 
Women Strike for Peace had one focus. The woman who started it, <clears throat> Dagmar Wilson, read about and knew that the United States was testing atomic bombs from planes in the sky. And they would fly the bombs <clears throat> over Nevada or wherever and drop them and the bombs would explode and hit the grass and the radiation would spew out. And in the radiation was a, a lethal chemical called strontium-90. So the cows ate the grass. The grass was full of radiation, radioactivity. Mm -hmm. And we used to give our babies cow milk in those days. A scientist named Barry Commoner, who eventually, fast forward, ran for president of the United States on a small third-party ticket, was examining baby teeth for the presence of strontium-90 and asked all the women in Women's Strike for Peace to send him the baby teeth. So after the babies dropped their teeth and you put them under the pillow and you, yes. the tooth fairy comes <laughs> and you leave a nickel, or in those days, pennies, mm -hmm. behind, we collected the baby teeth and mailed them to Barry, commoner. And indeed, he found strontium-90, and that's all we had to hear. We freaked out, and we went on the campaign trail to collect signatures on petitions calling on President Kennedy to sign a treaty to ban atmospheric testing of nuclear bombs, atomic bombs. Mm -hmm. We call that the half-ban treaty because it just banned the atmospheric testing. Okay. And we didn't have the scientific knowledge to realize that the testing would go underground or eventually into laboratories. Mm -hmm. In October of 1963, Women's Strike sent or took many, many women to stand at the White House fence as witnesses when Kennedy was signing the half-ban treaty. So that's what happened. That was October 1963. And now we're testing again, but we're doing it different. We're modernizing nuclear weapons. Yeah. So mm -hmm. things are going backwards. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. So, but it was an important victory yeah. for everyone. So whilst we're talking about things going backwards, we want to see what do you think will inspire the future generations to bring things forward again. I mean, you were inspired by what happened in this situation and with this group, but what can we do to help the future generations get into woman peace and security? You know, I get up every morning because I now have five grandchildren, mm -hmm. and I cannot bear the thought of leaving this world to them in this condition. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's always been... My, the motivation has always been the children and now the grandchildren. Mm -hmm. right. And it means everybody's grandchildren, not just mine. Yes. Mm -hmm. But mine are a good example. <laughs> <laughs> so young people have to decide, do you want to go to war and be killed or kill? Or do you want to say, it's time for war to go? Mm. Do you uh, 
want to live in a society where people are hated because of their religious beliefs or their racial colors? Or do you want to live in a society where people get along with each other? People, young people, have to decide if uh, it's cool to carry a concealed weapon or if maybe we should get rid of guns. I mean, these are things that become very personal. Yeah, absolutely. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, so um, I actually wanted to ask you about another project that you took on. Um, so uh, is there any way you could tell us a little bit about your role as executive director of the African American Students Foundation? Oh. Obviously, some of the really noteworthy recipients of the grants that you gave out were people like Bongari Matai, people who have done incredible work um, in Kenya, where she's from. So what made you want to take on this sort of project? It was 1959. Colonialism was alive and well and living in Africa. And the air of independence was strong. The liberation movements were building. And there was a liberation labor leader, liberation leader, labor leader in Kenya named Tom Mboya. And he was not from the majority tribe, which is Kikuyu. He was a Luo. And he was brilliant. He had gone to Ruskin College in England. Mm. Okay. But the Brits were going to leave in 63, and they were going to take everything with them. Right. All of the people who were civil servants who were running, administering the government. So he looked around and said, we don't have a university in our country. They had a technical college, Makerara. And our children can't get educated beyond secondary school. And even then, it's mostly Catholic schools and you had to pay for them and so forth. So he was invited to come to the United States by a man named George Hauser who was the executive director of the American Committee on Africa, ACOA. And it just so happened that my husband, Peter, was the president of the board of the American Committee on Africa. And I was a volunteer. We were early married. We had just had our first baby. And I did not, in that year, have a paying job, as I recall, yet. Um, so Tom came to this country, and he went on a speaking tour of colleges, and instead of being given an honorarium, being paid, he said, I'd like a scholarship, please. And he came back to New York with bags full of scholarships and put them on the table and said, what are we going to do with this? We can't get the kids to come here to accept the scholarships because they can't pay the airfare. Wow. So the idea of an airlift was born, mm -hmm. and he went around the table and he said, Cora, you be the director. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the set first time that happened. It happened again later at, a, yeah. at the Hague Field for Peace. Wow. No pressure. <laughs> um, so I became the executive director and a member of the board, and we raised money. 
It was very interesting. I worked with a man named uh, Frank Montero, who was African-American, and started out in life as a baseball player and then became a public relations person. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> we borrowed a room in an office, and the first plane came in September of 1959 with 81 students, 13 of whom were girls. And at the time, it didn't occur to me that that was remarkable. Mm -hmm. But years later, I realized how incredible that was. And to a student, they all went home four years later as nation builders. Mm -hmm. Wangare Watai, who got the, was the first African woman to get her Nobel Peace Prize yeah. for her environmental work, she came in 1960 on what she used to call the Kennedy Lift. <laughs> and Tom and Boya persuaded Kennedy to pay for three charters, airplanes. Okay. Wow. There's a nice backstory to it, but it's not it's too long for I iPad. Okay. iPod. <laughs> um, so Jack John F. Kennedy did that. And a lot of people think, not everybody, but a lot of people think that Kennedy won the black vote in this country for president. It was the swing vote, and the majority of the swing vote, apparently, were African-American voters. And Kennedy presumably had their vote because, some people think, of his paying for this African airline. Mm -hmm. Altogether, we brought about almost 800 students from Kenya and other East and Central African countries. The majority were Kenyan. They became the civil servants because there was nobody else to run the government. Wow. One of the girls who came on the first trip stayed and, be and went to medical school. My father helped her get into medical school. Amazing. Yeah, and she went back and started the first clinic for women in Kenya. So just speaking to you, you have so many stories and there are so many causes that you've you've dedicated your life to. It's all one. Mm. It's all about okay. peace. Okay. Okay. Right. right. It's human rights and peace and it may take little different forms, but their purposes are to make the place a safer place for us to live in. So today what can we do today? Things seem to be going backwards, as we've mentioned before. But there are movements every Saturday from since the uh, inauguration of Trump. There's been a demonstration. There is a conscience. There are progressive people. You represent the young women <laughs> of this generation coming up. And you can't take it lying down you know you can get a job you can make money and you can have a social conscience and do something you can mm -hmm. very Absolutely. true yeah. you don't have to give up your ability to live mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. everybody needs a job mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
because this welfare state is not something that's happened yet. Correct. No, yes. <laughs> no doubt about that. So, last question. Um, what do you think the world needs more of? Progressive women who run things. Correct. Amazing answer. Absolutely agree. I no longer call for just women, or what I say, women, women. Because there are so many right-wing women. There are so many women who would get rid of Roe v. Wade, Mm -hmm. who would get rid of same-sex marriage, Mm -hmm. who would make you show identification that you never heard of in order to vote. Mm. restricting the vote. So I talk about progressive, justice, and peace-loving women. Mm. And everybody nods, and they all say, sure. But then you go out and listen to a woman talking, yeah. and they just talk about women. They don't talk about peace-loving, justice-loving women. So it hasn't changed Gender equality-loving women. <laughs> right. So we need to talk about them to change that okay well on that note I think that's a great place to wrap up something to think about for the future thank you so much once again thank you (laughs) thank you for doing what you're doing it's great it reassures me Really? Yeah. That's, really, that's amazing. Well, we only take inspiration from, from women like you who've definitely paved the way for us to even be able but to. But I'm thrilled that you're at the Global Network of Women Peace Builders. As a way. Yes, definitely. Very right. Well, this is, uh, so we're wrapping up this episode of GNWP Talks. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, thank you, Mrs. Corwitz, for talking with us. Thank, thank you. you.